I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Mary Wilde, self-described Freudian cinephile and host of the Projection series held at the Freud Museum, London. She's also co-host of Projections Podcast. Mary Wilde has a Projections course coming up at the Freud Museum, which will be online April 18th and is on The Joker. You can sign up through the Freud Museum website, freud.org.uk. We'll be discussing the Freud series on Netflix. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.com. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about the Freud show. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so should we jump into it? I'm so excited Let- to talk about the Freud show. Yeah, let's yeah, let's just get started. Okay. I'm so happy that um I finally get to talk about it because I feel like I've been anticipating it for so long. Exactly. <laughs> what did you think of it? Um well, I I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Um I tend I I would I would say I I really did enjoy it overall. Um it's one of those things where it was the last episode that really wrapped up everything for me and got to appreciate it more uh, about what it was trying to communicate about the teachings of psychoanalysis and Freud's process about how he arrived at his theories. Um, I feel like everything sort of fell into place and I understood looking back some of the symbolism of what was intended to be communicated I just sometimes along the series like along the eight episodes I felt a little at times frustrated when Freud wasn't in the scenes I was like I want to know more about Freud I want him to be there you know yeah it's like no I totally agree I, I I was really into it in the beginning then like episode five oh we should say disclaimer we are going to give away the show so if you have not watched the show yet and you want to go watch the show and then come back because we are going to talk Absolutely. about the show <laughs> <Lots> <laughs> but <of> <laughs> episode five when they had the like full-on blood-soaked demonic possession orgy scene then oh I was like God. okay now they've gone too far <laughs> Now you finally lost me. <laughs> but I agree that by the last episode, they kind of tied it all together and made it made more sense. So that I was, I was like, by the end, once they wrapped it up, I was happy with it again. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the creators because I know it was made by, so this is obviously the Freud Netflix series. It's made by Marvin Kren, Stefan Brunner, and Benjamin Hessler. And... I have it on good authority that they did quite a thorough research about the history of, you know, the events that took place in Freud's life and his influences and, um, you know, the people that he knew, etc. And uh, in fact, he even, um, like the creators, I believe Marvin Kren, he visited the Freud Museum in London, where mm-hmm. I do my lecture series. Mm-hmm. Um, to get information about, you know, obviously the, the, the sort of data that they keep there. So it's good to know that they they, they did their research and their homework. Um, and I was really kind of 
pleased to see lots of little details about his life sprinkled through the whole like series like just little things like the chow dog and Mm -hmm. um the fact that there was a patient called bertha pappenheim but what i most want to know actually i was i wanted to ask you about it vanessa is like this what like the symbolism of the character of fleur salome so she obviously shares her last name with Lou Andrea Salome, Freud's um, good friend and colleague. Mm-hmm. And the first woman psychoanalyst. And the first woman psychoanalyst, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know, because I don't really know that much about her. And I kind of was wondering, obviously, this is all a fictionalized, you know, TV series. It's not meant, it's not at all intended to, intended to be biographically accurate. It's sort of like, almost like fan fiction, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like fan fiction. <laughs> totally, <laughs> that's and totally it's, what it is. It totally is, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's like total fantasy, and like uh, you know, and we know that Freud obviously had an interest in the occult, mm-hmm. so sort of playing with that, and they obviously um, embellished his relationship with Arthur Schnitzler, who Freud did know very well in in Vienna. They they uh, exchanged a lot of letters, but they never met each other mm-hmm. in person. And so I like how this kind of TV series is sort of engaging with all this material, but in a total fantastical way. And I kind of wanted to know what you thought about the Fleur character. Like, what what did she present? I was really intrigued. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, she definitely, I mean, she's clearly the hysteric, the hysteric psychic. Yes. <laughs> right? Um, I... I tend to believe, I choose to believe that Freud did not sleep with his patients. I know that yeah. Jung did, <laughs> and I know a lot of them did. <laughs> um, yeah, but <laughs> something in me just will not believe that Freud did. I just see Freud as this like really like patriarchal, paternal, like proper yeah. guy. And he had Martha, and he had his six kids. And I don't yeah. know, I just feel like Freud wouldn't go there. But... You know, who, how do I know? I don't. Um, so for me, it was really hard to see Freud going there. I was like, no, that was young. That's not Freud. <laughs> but also, maybe he fantasized about it. Maybe we could see them as exactly. fantasies, like his scene masturbating in the tub to the hysteric yeah. psychic patient. I mean, I don't know. It's amazing. I, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by who these creators were. And like what, yeah. like I want to know what they were doing and how they came up with this because, like you said, it's it's fanfic is like the best way to describe it. It's like this like murder mystery psychic show, and like you can have like I understand a murder mystery psychic show. I understand even Freud with a murder mystery. Like Danny Novas uh, said that there was like a Sherlock Holmes book and film huh? where they kind of wove Freud in at some point in the like the seventies, <laughs> and that it's like Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes and Freud solving cases and I could even understand that a bit and now I have to read that and watch that film um, oh, apparently wow. that's called 7% Solution but it's like having all three like the psychics and Freud and the murder mystery it's like it's almost yeah. too much <laughs> but I, yeah. I kind of feel like it fits these times though it's like we kind of need that right now yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, you're right. And it kind of fits in with how Freud liked to um, compare psychoanalysis to detective work. You know, like he, this kind of forensic element of psychoanalysis where you, you arrive at the scene and there's been some sort of trauma or chaos or acting out. And then you retrace the steps and you look back at what led you here. And and this kind of, uh, yeah, I suppose, retroactive technique. Um and yeah, I agree. It's sort of funny to see representations of Freud as this sort of eroticized being outside of his marriage, because I really relate to how you perceive him as well. Like I, I, I was a little bit almost like scandalized to see the yeah. scenes, you know, <laughs> kind of like having sex with with Fleur and and I thought, oh, my God, what about Martha? You know, you're so devoted to her. And he really was I, from what I've read about him. He was a very faithful man. Um, And I guess I kind of also like to reconcile what I saw with the idea that it was just pure fantasy. And probably it did happen many times that he might have fantasized about other women, but 
he and Martha had an understanding where she didn't try and be possessive over his fantasy life. You know, like there was this kind of respect and um, acknowledgement of each other's autonomy, which I think is probably what happened. Yeah, I I can. That makes sense for me. Also, maybe we're just like good hysterics and we just like can't imagine the father <laughs> figure that way. Only for us. <laughs> right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And as far as uh, Salome, um, I know that the real Lou and Salome was like a great hysteric as well, I'll say. And I think yes. she was like had relation with like Nietzsche's and stuff like yeah. that. Like she was like she was a little scandalous in that like really fantastic feminine way. So yeah. maybe they were pulling off of that. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Kind of in a way. um referencing her as uh, a woman ahead of her time, you know, someone who disturbed the Viennese or the kind of Victorian status quo at the time. Um, because she was, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see this kind of possessed character of two minds and, 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 and the way that they used all of that symbolism, a, a lot of it is from really like horror tropes, you know, horror movie tropes, horror literature tropes of people being possessed, you know, secret occult societies, which also kind of ties in with a lot of what Arthur Schnitzler wrote about, like obviously his book Dream Story, which was adapt adapted to Eyes Wide Shut. Mm, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So Arthur Schnitzler wrote the original um, story. It's a great little novella called Dream Story. And that was adapted by Frederick Raphael into uh, Kubrick's film. Yeah. And so there's uh, there's some great scenes right at the beginning of this show, in the maybe first or second episode, where we see Arthur Schnitzler and Freud attending these like kind of like risque parties that look like they may be orgies or something. And there's masked figures. Yeah. So it's maybe even suggesting that this might have even been where uh, Arthur Schnitzler got his inspiration, you know, the kind of risque element of Vienna. Right. That's wonderful. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't picked that up. That's wonderful. Now I want to read that too. Now I have new books to read. Yeah, oh, but I do like how Salome, like, she ended up being this, like, really independent spirit, you know, and it's it's also yeah. speaking to, like, you know, the fact that old people in the hospitals were women. It's just like demonizing uh, women. And like, of course, women were acting out hysterically. They were trapped in this like, like this like society that was really rigid and they didn't have any choices and they couldn't have education and they couldn't have uh, their own careers. You know, they were just trapped in these like mother mother roles and they were acting what? out all over the place and and Fleur Salome she she didn't fall into that role she was acting out and then she ended up escaping yes yeah she was kind of an outlaw in the end she was on the run and she was hunted by Viennese authorities Austrian authorities and she she sort of found her uh I guess her element in that state of being in chaos in a sense yeah, I like how she how he wanted to take the the demon whatever thing out of her and she said no, that's part of me and she wanted yeah. to just like integrate all the selves instead of like like ridding herself of one part of herself. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if the hysteric condition was portrayed in the series as having um a kind of teaching like creating a teaching moment for the young Freud who was like coming to grips with his own theory and trying to build psychoanalysis kind of teaching him that um the state of total like normal uh psychology doesn't really exist we're always tormented we're always trying to resolve something there's always going to be conflict you can't completely rid yourself of it you just have to try and somehow confront it and integrate it into yourself and that makes you more powerful actually exactly exactly it's the trying to cut it off or ignore it that makes it keep coming back stronger you have to integrate it and like accept all the parts of yourself so you can like work with yourself 
yeah. and be more integrated and strong. And he did learn all of psychoanalysis from working with his therics. Yeah. And I also love that they have Breuer in there and he talks about <laughs> the, the patient Pappenheim where he she had a hysterical pregnancy. But then That's when right. when I saw it in the uh, in the show, I started thinking maybe he was really sleeping with her too. And that's why they say her her pregnancy, like in his version that he, that's written that we can read, it's like she made up this complete fantasy of having this pregnancy with him that was total fabrication. But maybe he was sleeping with her. Maybe it wasn't a total fabrication. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, yeah, absolutely. It made sense that maybe there was some logical reason why she had that suspicion. You know, like it might have been actually rooted in some events that took place. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Maybe she really got pregnant and miscarried. We don't know. We only yeah. have his version. We only have his version. Yeah, exactly. I was so curious also about like the the character of uh, Alfred Kiss, you know, the policeman. Yeah, um, I really liked him. Me too. Me too. I was trying to figure out what he represented because there was so much there about like, uh, war PTSD and like him sort of presenting a challenge to uh, the the sort of uh, law enforcement and authority in Vienna. He'd kind of gone a little bit rogue. He was a very violent man as well, uh, but only when provoked. And then that final scene of him sort of disappearing into the Vienna canals, it was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of saw him as a like a counterpart in a way to Floor, like showing that like the society and the societal constraints and expectations they're not they're not just causing women to act out and be constrained, but it happens to men as well. Like men have all these expectations on them. You have to be a man. You have to be a soldier. You have to go to war. You have to be the provider, and that uh, that had really you know done a number on him as well, going through the war and losing his son and. Um, yeah, yeah, all of that violence and that that that's that's also needs to be addressed. So I feel like the creators did a good job of kind of showing the effects these societal systems and constraints have on everybody. Yes, absolutely. Especially in the final episode when there's this kind of ma- there's a very formal party hosted by the royal family mm-hmm. and they're all sort of like dancing and 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 uh, to engage in a very formal way at this party and then it kind of made me think a lot about what freud wrote in civilization and his discontents about how civilization is really the kind of almost like a masquerade that covers up a lot of violent impulses mm-hmm. and refuses to engage with that and then at this same party um you know we have like a, a, a very uh, chaotic, riotous outburst of violence. And so it's it's almost as if, it's always suggesting what Freud wrote, that um, that the advancement of culture is really a product of this entwined dual state between eras and thanatos. Mm-hmm. And this is what pushes our civilization forward, actually. It's what makes us more creative. This, I guess, the, the negotiation between those two things. Yeah, exactly. And it like all came apart at the seams in this show and just like everything burst out. Then I had to forgive them for for the episode five because then it made sense why everyone was having the blood, the blood orgy or whatever. It's like, OK, because they all had to act out in this way at the end. How else are you going to infuse a whole group of people? But of course, by, you know, animal blood and orgies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That's a natural. You know, How are you going to get uh, it to everyone all at once? It's the only, only logical way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, it, and this almost like a very infectious transmission of the violence through suggestion, through this kind of hypnosis technique that the two, uh, you know, that couple uh, was using, um, the ones who were controlling Fleur, mm. the Hungarian couple. Mm. Um, you know, and it was a really interesting. Uh, idea that uh, actually suggestion and hypnosis and suggestibility, it's not just something that is done formally in the analytic room. It's, you know, we're, we're always receiving subliminal messages, you know, at, at all times. And so it, it's, it, it really kind of requires uh, a working through of what it is that we're actually being influenced by uh, unconsciously. 
Um, and also and also all the things that we internalize unconsciously as well through uh, superego representations of authority that we have to accept illegitimate laws and we just do it unconsciously. It's a form of suggestion. Um, yeah, I, I love how it kind of weaved a lot of psychoanalytic principles throughout the show, but in this narrative of a kind of, as you say, like a, a cult uh, murder mystery, you know. <laughs> Yeah, fun, fantastical way. But I'm all for, like, getting psychoanalytic ideas out there. Like, I'm so happy that there's a Freud show. Like, why they threw Freud in there for a lot of points during the show, I'm like, what does this have to do with Freud? But then, like you said, a lot of the principles are interwoven in there. And the idea they said... uh for one of the, I think it was for the prince, they said, you know, it's not really, like, when they get hypnotized, it's really just, like, letting them kind of unleash a bit more what's already inside of them, you know? I like that as well, the id's kind of bursting out and the animal inside of them. And also, um, as far as suggestibility and, like, you know, we're getting all these information from advertising and all sorts of things all of the time and they they showed a lot the Bernays family and they had their little kids and Edward Bernays is kind of the father of modern advertising and so it was funny to like kind of have him in there as like a little boy (laughs) that's right he was Eli's son Mm -hmm. yeah Eli Bernays that's right that's Mm -hmm. right it was I do remember thinking, um, I, I do actually remember uh, looking up Edward Bernays on Wikipedia and thinking, oh, that was in fact Eli, his, who, who was his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there was this kind of like, I suppose, exploitation of a lot of his uncle's ideas and theories to serve like public relations and advertising and everything we now live with in terms of like the 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 driving force of neoliberal economics really yeah exactly and he used to he used to ask for for his papers before they came out and like send him boxes (laughs) of cigars and stuff send him presents to get them early he totally read (laughs) everything Freud did wow yeah what a shadow (laughs) side of Freud's work Yeah, I was also kind of really intrigued to see how Sigmund Freud was portrayed as as a subject, as a person throughout the show. And I was that actually really pleased me, like to see that his gentleness was portrayed and his how, how much he was such a deep thinker. And he was a little, you know, his vulnerabilities and the fact that he wasn't immune to emotional disturbance simply because he studied it or wrote about it. He himself um was you know was also subject to difficulties and and um, sort of psychological challenges that he had to deal with yeah it's a really good point he was human and that's i mean that's how we all learn is like going through our own experiences and that's it i always say about psychoanalysis really the best way to learn it is to kind of when you go through your analysis and you kind of see all these things at play in your own life then you can understand what yeah. the theory is talking about more or if you use cinema as your analyst, as you do, it's just like reflecting on the different theories and seeing how they're at play in your own life and relating to them, you know, personally. That's really the best yeah. way to learn about it. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and this only made me want to, like, dig up old texts and, like, try and, uh, yeah, find new connections and, and a different uh, interpretation of things I'd learned before. So I felt that the show had a lot of heuristic value in terms of learning. Um, and, and like you, I agree. I think that um, I think those who expect this show to be an, you know, a historical, historically accurate account will be very disappointed. But I think I do agree that it's nice to have a show like this out in the in the mainstream on Netflix on something as mainstream and 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 you know popular as Netflix to kind of make sure that these ideas stay alive and stay fresh in people's consciousness and that um, there's new uh, that we can actually build and write new roadmaps to arriving at these ideas and engage audiences and as long as we understand that it's purely um, a kind of very imaginative reinterpretation of ideas and researchers arriving at their understanding of Freud through the creative process, then I think it can only have good things and benefits for us. 
Exactly, because, you know, not everybody wants to write. I mean, there's a great series like the Genius series, Geniuses of the Modern World, and there's a Freud episode uh -huh. of that, but not everybody wants <laughs> to watch historical shows, you know, not everybody's into that. So I'm all for getting ideas out there, you know, in more creative ways as well. It's like the more, the more, yeah. the better. I also really liked how they portrayed Freud, um, how they showed like what an outsider he was in the establishment yeah. and how he kind of stood up for his ideas anyway um, in the face of yeah. these like really like biologically based uh, medical doctors because he, he was like really radical and revolutionary in his time and people have tried to turn his ideas into this other sort of dogma and say that he was like really rigid but you know, to think this is like 130 years ago he's coming up with yeah. this and you know he he was really he was really radical and I understand like he did study occult themes uh, when he was younger and I like that they I like the way that they ended it showing that like this is a book that he wanted to write but then he wasn't able to because of the constraints of society because that's oh, something yeah. that's so frustrating to me I also I recently wrote my own book and when I was it, it, um, when I was reading Lacan's biography by Elizabeth Rudinesco she talks uh -huh. about how Lacan when he wrote his doctoral like dissertation like his medical thesis um, about psychosis that he actually took a lot of ideas from the surrealists and he was friends <laughs> with a lot of them and was integrating their work and ideas but he specifically left that out and didn't want to cite them because he didn't want like the medical professionals and his colleagues and his professors to kind of look down on where he was getting his ideas and then, yeah. and then we only find these kinds of things out later when he's more established and like more willing to talk about these kinds of things openly but I feel like that's such a shame that people feel like they have to censor themselves or inhibit themselves mm -hmm. because they're afraid of what these authority figures are going to think about their work absolutely I know it it kind of um, is sad to think that those forces might have stopped so many radical thinkers um, from from producing r incredible work that would have benefited so many people. And so, in a way, it's good to see that, yeah, the the drive that Freud had right from the start of his career to um, follow his instincts and st stay true to the things that he was observing, you know, really follow the data of his patients and follow his own, um, I suppose, radical streak of wanting to invent something new, really create something different. And you can really see that, you can really see in the show what he's up against, you know, like the, the massive uh, obstacle of, um, not just sort of banal sort of administrative obstacles, but also the fevered egos of people who believe themselves to be um, unchallenged authorities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this kind of d dynamic and tension between someone, especially like Freud, who in the show, he appears to be not a terribly like arrogant guy. Like he's sort of just a, a young person with an idea and with a lot of passion but he's not like a, he's not an egotist. He's not doing it for fame. It's, he, he's really truly driven by the love of knowledge. Like he truly is the philosopher. Um, um, you know, so it's nice to see that this was this, this played out. And also in terms of Freud and his personal life, we also know that Martha's family initially was not too keen on Freud. They weren't too keen on Martha marrying him. And because they worried that he was a little too volatile with his career, that he was abandoning a safe, uh, you know, very secure career in medicine to chase after these kind of dragons of hypnosis and hysteria and psychoanalysis. And they were they were concerned about Martha. I think they were quite um, I think they might have been very uh, traditional, very conservative people as well. So so they might have thought of Freud as someone a little who maybe gone a little too rogue for Martha, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting that he had not only professional pressures on him to conform, but also personal pre pressures in his family, with his in-laws probably expecting something more secure for their daughter and her future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like how they portrayed that, and how he also still continued. He like. He paid attention to his own experience, his own insights, and valued like his own 
perception over what everyone was telling him to think. And he also paid yeah. attention to what his patients were saying and was really listening to them rather than just putting them in categories. <laughs> also, how people had just already decided that people should be and think. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. It's very hard to do, especially in his era, in his historical time and Victorian values that didn't even, you know, humanize women as sexual beings. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I know I've yeah. only, it's amazing to say, but I've only really recently, because I've always wondered like how, like even like how men have treated women like this for so many centuries, millennia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but when you have a daughter, how can you like continue to see women that way when you see your daughter has all these potentials and things but then I finally realized like they just really you know they just saw this as like animals like we're just for yeah. making babies or like breeders <laughs> and they didn't really see us as whole humans no <laughs> exactly there was no there was absolutely no um respect given to us as autonomous beings with souls we, we were just as you say like vectors of reproduction yeah and I guess I didn't saying that you know they also saw other people that way that didn't look like them and also you know animals and now like everyone clearly is saying like all humans are humans and have full yeah. fleshed out lives and also animals maybe should be treated a little bit nicer too you know animals aren't just animals either <laughs> in that way exactly. <laughs> yeah that's why it's actually in a weird way like very heartening during this time of a global virus pandemic to see that some animals have uh kind of been found in urban areas because there's no one there yeah exactly and it's They're like going back I wonder into what the, the streets and things. yeah <laughs> they were kind of reclaiming their world and I almost wonder like what what must it be like for the animal kingdom at this time? They must really notice a radical difference. Yeah, exactly. Not so much air traffic, boat traffic, car traffic, foot traffic. It's like when we're all in our houses. It's also nice to see how fast it happens. Like as soon as we're all inside for a few weeks, they all start, you know, yeah, coming back into the into the land. Yeah, and here in London, the air pollution is gone. I mean, it's I can't I I've never actually breathe such clean air in London for as long as I've lived here and it's in, as you say it's it's start, startling to see how quickly that happened yeah that's good I hope that we all remember that when whenever this is yeah. finally passed and like maybe like uh, one of our friends here uh Per Faxnelt, he he talked about how um in Sweden, you know, there's so many like air flight routes to every other city all day long. And like, do we really need this when you can just take the train? Yeah. Like maybe from like the very south of Sweden to the north of Sweden, like fine, you could make maybe plane that way because it'd be like a 20 hour train ride or something. But otherwise, if it's like a five, six, eight hour train ride, just, you know, everybody just take the train. You know, we don't need so many air routes. We need to like be a little more mindful and cognizant of these yeah. things. Yeah, I, I too hope that we remember this, you know, when things become operational again, that we'll just, that this is going to force us to rethink a lot of our ways. Exactly. We don't maybe need to be like Greta and take a boat across the ocean, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, we could find somewhere in the middle or like three quarters yeah. of the way to Greta. <laughs> yes, that'll already make a huge difference. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> It would make a huge difference. Maybe walk more instead of driving places, have more train routes in place. I know in the United States, where I'm from, it's like, it's really hard to take the train anywhere unless you live in like a few major cities like New York or San Francisco. But everywhere else, you ha you kind of have to have a car. You can't really get anywhere any other way. So maybe, you know, unless you want to take the bus for 24 hours or something. So maybe, you know, thinking about that and putting more train routes in place and that sort of thing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, back to Freud. It. Back to Freud, yeah. <laughs> I feel like this actually, I mean, this show has probably landed at the, at the most opportune time because with people being stuck at home in a pandemic and with so many cities on lockdown, there's a lot of introspection going on, I'm sure. Like there's a lot of, you know, uh, maybe extroverts who are normally used to being social butterflies they're now forced to be confined in their home and there's so much time to think and reflect on yourself. So a show like this dropping at this time and kind of like remind us that 
you know, there is an established methodology of introspecting and psychoanalysis is this wonderful tool. Um, you know, I think it's a really opportune moment. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's definitely coming at a really good time. Um, and, you know, as silly as it can be at points and fantastical, um, it's still like mu was much more entertaining than a lot of shows I've tried to watch recently. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. It's definitely. I agree. It was it fun. Has a lot of it was a fun values. show. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need a little absolutely. bit of fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think hopefully what people will find captivating about the show is uh, the things that we've outlined. You know, Freud's um, passion about what he believed in, his dedication to understanding the human psyche, um, and I'm, I was almost even thinking like along the lines of a show like this that kind of retells the story of established um, philosophers or psychoanalysts, I would love to see a show like this about Lacan. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hint, and, and hint show, to like, the creators. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Marvin Krenn, if you're listening, your next project is Lacan. <laughs> That would be amazing. Yeah. That would be really scandalous for sure, because Lacan definitely slept with his patients. Definitely. <laughs> and and apparently, someone told me recently that he would like do sessions in a cab. He'd be like, "I have to go somewhere," that makes someone get in a cab with him and just listen to them on the ride. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> but that's the thing: the people we remember are not the conservative people that. Um, play by all the rules and do exactly what society tells you to do that's for sure <laughs> exactly exactly and even some you know i can imagine a show like this about carl jung that would also be intriguing especially if they wanted to bring in the occult or spiritual element i mean they would really have a field day with him i mean that would just be exactly. extraordinary exactly yeah, this would be fun. Maybe we need to work with these guys. <laughs> I can, I, we can be the, like, uh, what, what is it called when you, like, inform shows about historical oh, yeah. things? The, the consultants. Yeah, we can be consultants <laughs> for their show. I'm into it. <laughs> if you're listening, hire us, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, I did, I did really appreciate a lot of the, um, just details as well, like the costumes and the wonderful locations. Uh, I believe actually they were not filming in Vienna. They, they, the show was completely exclusively filled in Prague. Oh, wow. Prague is uh, so beautiful. That makes sense. So beautiful. And of course, there's a very similar architecture, but also I think it was just more um, more economical to film in Prague as well. Mm -hmm. No, the, yeah. the the scenes were beautifully done and the costumes were beautiful. It, yeah. it was well done in that way, most definitely. Like, I want all of Fleur's clothes. I know. <laughs> Why can't we dress like that now? <laughs> she looks fabulous maybe I should start dressing like that yeah <laughs> bring it back <laughs> it was amazing um yeah and as far as the occult stuff like like Freud did do like thought experiments with um Anna Freud and with Sandra Ferenzi like well into late life like he wrote yeah. about it initially and like presented it initially to his little like beginning psychoanalytic group yeah. but then at some point he decided that he really wanted to like make psychoanalysis a valid quote-unquote science which you know when you look at the the um situation he was in and the kind of culture he was in it makes sense that he wanted to kind of you know be taken seriously and if he needed to cut that out a bit then then fine he was really yeah. um open about a lot of other stuff but they kept doing those thought experiences you know into the 1930s so it's not like he dropped yeah. it <laughs> yeah exactly he, he always maintained an interest in it and and a certain level of engagement um and I'm kind of almost thinking about how, like, the the point at which this series ended. I I, I am kind of hopeful that there will be a second series because I feel like they ended right at the threshold of really the ex, like sort of his his real induction into the world of psychoanalysis, his the the the, the entryway, and hopefully in the second series we'll see him. Yeah, we, we will see uh, the beginning of his uh, Wednesday group and um, his lectures and his 
uh, work with people like Adler and Otto Rank. You know, I want to see, I'd like to see that, you know, I'd like to see the kind of development of, of the story. And hopefully, hopefully we will just continue this series until he arrives in London. Yeah, I would love that fanfic. I would love this fanfic to continue <laughs> all the way till the end. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh, do you know what Vanessa last year my husband and I we actually traveled to Vienna I'd never been before it was my very first time uh, visiting there and we stayed in the neighborhood where Freud lived and worked so it was extraordinary like every day retracing his steps like around the park and the university and his old home which is of course now the museum mm-hmm. and uh, while we were there, there was a wonderful exhibition at a museum in Vienna that celebrated 100 years since, um, you know, the kind of wonderful cultural um, epicenter that was Vienna at the time, uh, at the time when Freud lived and worked there. Mm-hmm. And it was a real celebration of the people who contributed to the rich artistic life of Vienna and the philosophical life of Vienna. Of course, Freud was one of the figures that was represented in the museum. And one thing I learned while uh, looking at that exhibition was that in those years, so like we're talking like 1910, you know, turn of the century Vienna, um, Adolf Hitler was just a young guy. Mm-hmm. And he was, of course, Austrian. He tried to get into art school because uh, he was, a, I think he worked with watercolors. He was a painter and he was rejected. And he didn't get into the art school of his choice. And so he ended up kind of in destitution. He was in poverty. He was a, he was a, um, he, he was one of those artists that uh, painted on the street, like landscapes and stuff or like cityscapes. And um, apparently he was in a path so he would be like a street artist on a path where Freud uh, commuted quite frequently. Ooh. So I would like to see, if possible, like maybe in the next series, like a fanfic of some interactions between Sigmund Freud and a very young Adolf Hitler. And, you know, the, the, the tragedy that's kind of building up about what is could be happening in the future and how that in turn affects not only Freud who had to of course escape to London but also tragically his family where many members of his family you know his immediate family were killed in in the second world war yeah and a lot of psychoanalysts that's something that I feel like needs to be talked about more a lot of psychoanalysts were killed in the war Um, Some committed suicide to escape being killed but like Sabina Spielrein she was killed with her daughters (laughs) Uh, by the SS uh, after she went back to Russia so it's like they they killed a lot of psychoanalysts Um, Mm -hmm. most of them were Jewish Um, but that's a really interesting point because this young like destitute man seeing this like really up and coming successful kind of doctor Mm -hmm. doing so Mm -hmm. well on his walk all the time um, yeah and having so much hatred hatred towards him he really actively persecuted Freud when you you know when he finally had power yeah. and could. That's and, right. And he, Freud's he, books he, were some real... of the first works to be burned. Burned, absolutely, absolutely. There was a very conscious bigotry and and, and, and racist hatred of Freud mm-hmm. and what he represented. And there was a very kind of um, interesting line, a quote from Freud, who when he discovered that they were burning his books, he made this kind of like. Uh, remarks saying uh, uh, how far we've come, you know, how much we've evolved. Um, you know, 200 years ago, I would have been burned at the stake, but now they're content merely to burning to burning my books. Now, of course, this prior to the uh, Holocaust, which unfortunately ended up being, you know, the tragedy of what happened. But yeah, absolutely, it would be interesting to see that um, to- a totally kind of imagined, fictionalized account of the forces that were at play at the time, um, because also in this series, in the first series of, of Freud, we do see how, how much there is anti-Semitism in Vienna and mm-hmm. and how casually it is kind of expressed to Freud and how he's made to always feel othered um, by people. And this, of course, gets worse over the years. And we know that at that uh, that when Hitler was young, living in Vienna, when he was poor and he had all this time on his hands and he was sort of idle, uh, he was also radicalized by a lot of anti-Semites there. Mm. Uh, you know, the situation got worse for him. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, they also showed that in the shows that they, they nodded. They did a lot of no- historical nods that, that you, like you mentioned, which I really like, like turning yeah. the actor's face into like a really famous picture of Freud or like Freud and Martha. <laughs> I really liked that. But they also showed, they kind of alluded to this thing that Freud wrote about where he had this like shame of his father because he was like walking when he was a little boy with his father and like some, you know, men came up and were like rude to his father for being Jewish yeah. bigoted and like pushed him aside or pushed off his hat or something where the father like That's took right. off his hat and like bowed to the guys and like got out of their way and Freud was always like really uh, like ashamed of that and wanted his father to like kind of like stand up to them you know not understanding of course as a child like the full ramifications of how hard that would be to do and what would happen if he did you know absolutely yeah and we, we know how much that hurt him and how much that um, yeah it affected the way that he perceived his father as well. Um, I, I find that the actor they chose to play Jacob Freud is like uncanny. Like he really looked a lot like him. Um, I would say also Robert Finster, who plays Sigmund Freud, was very good. Like he he was a, he was very good at his impression. Um, and I like the way that his mother re- was represented as well. Like because we know that she doted on Freud so much and she absolutely adored him. She was one of his biggest like hype people, um, which is also something that he replicated in his relationship with Martha. Martha was an extremely supportive wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I always maintain that without Martha, there probably wouldn't have been psychoanalysis. You know, she she created a, such structure to his life, and was there for him so much, and was so dedicated and loving that you know he had everything he needed in her. Yeah, she, I'm sure she took care of everything so he could just focus on the work. And uh, yeah, they had yeah. like six kids, so yeah. but she had a lot of on her hands. She had a lot, of, <laughs> had a lot of work to do. Um, yeah, yeah, and also, and also Freud was a tourist, so he was like, you know, he was very, um, you know, passionate about keeping order and maintaining structure and and tidiness. Um, and he was very strong-willed. He was very stubborn. So mm, stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah, never been to Vienna and or been to Vegasi nineteen. I really, I have to go when this is all past. I have to go there and make a pilgrimage. Absolutely, you'll 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 love it. You will love it. Maybe you can tell me where you stayed at the hotel. And I can say I will. Bye. I'll share that with you. Yeah, that would be really fun. I would love sure. to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I also love how you pointed out how it ended. They ended with him taking his first patient. Yeah, in his, in his private practice, quitting the <laughs> hospital and and setting up his couch, his famous yeah. couch. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's lovely. I feel like they left it at a perfect cliffhanger for us, kind of implying that there's more to come. You know, this is just the beginning of the story. We're going to really it was it was just laying out the groundwork for how he arrived at his practice. And now we're going to hopefully see the second and third series, if if not more, uh, of how the practice developed and the things that he learned from his patients and where he made mistakes and yeah, just those kinds of um, his his process, really. Yeah, and I yeah, and I love I love the idea that he had written this whole book um, about this like <laughs> possession and hysteria and the occult, and it was like forbidden. But that's kind of what his knowledge was based on. And also, it's interesting we have to note that his mom yeah. was told by an oracle um, when he was born or when she was pregnant <laughs> that this was going to be a very like famous man who like changed the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so his mom put that on him from when he was, yeah, <laughs> when he was born. And he was also the firstborn. Mm-hmm. So she, she placed a lot of expectations on him, but she seemed to be doing it always in a loving way. Like it wasn't an, she, she might have been very, she might have had a lot of standards for him, but she seemed to really be affectionate with him and love him. So she didn't seem like an overbearing punitive parent right and she didn't seem to have a preconceived idea of what he should be doing just that he was going to be great and she was going to support his greatness (laughs) i love our romanticized idea of freud and his his family life (laughs) it actually made me want to reread peter gay's um biography 
Yeah, that would be yeah. great. And his, great. I love Freud's letters, yeah. reading Freud's letters. I, I guess we we also haven't mentioned the cocaine aspect of the show, which oh, they gosh. talk about. Yeah. But he does write a lot about it. If you read his like letters to Martha when he was like <laughs> courting her, like which would be this period of time, he's always talking about how he took cocaine and like went to these academic events and parties and how he like wowed everybody with how smart he was. <laughs> <laughs> so he was definitely on it yeah Yeah. it was accurate it was an accurate uh you know element of of that period of his life that he really was addicted you know he he did have a dependence on cocaine Mm -hmm. and also the fact that it's the, the cocaine consumption at that time needn't be confounded with how we perceive cocaine today Right. You know, so some, so so like that, that's the thing that sometimes I think people struggle with. They think of Freud as using cocaine or even sometimes abusing cocaine and think, you know, this doesn't uh, actually seem proportionate with how how he might have been sometimes socially conservative, you know. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, at that time, it was seen as a very experimental thing. And um, I think he even early on in his career wanted to write a, a paper or maybe he did write a paper about the benefits of cocaine and how he wanted to recommend it as a treatment for everyone. Yeah, he wrote um, several. I have them. They're called. Right. There's a book called The Cocaine Papers. Of course, yes, that's right. The Cocaine <laughs> mm-hmm. Papers, yeah. He wrote about it a lot, and he was really, you know, he really thought it was great, which of course you think it's great when you're doing it all the time. I'm sure it felt great. And it was also, like, much more minimal, I think, than what people do, like, illicitly, and it wasn't illegal, you know, at the time. It was, like, a, yeah. it was a medical, everything was medical substance. Yeah. So it's a different time and place, but, uh, no, he wrote several time. papers about it, and that kind of, that was kind of the thing that tanked him before he found, like, hypnosis and psychoanalysis is that he was writing about like all the neurological benefits and benefits of this drug and then like while he was writing about that then it became kind of more well known that maybe this has a lot of bad side effects and isn't so great to take all the time so like all this time he had spent researching it and studying it and promoting it was kind of flushed down the toilet and he had to find something else yeah exactly yeah it sort of forced him to think about things in a in a very different way uh, coming off the treatment that he, he was absolutely certain was going to be beneficial. This was going to be the panacea for everything. Mm-hmm. And he was really forced to reconsider. Exactly. But the interesting thing is, is that even when you read his early neurological papers, because those things are not included <laughs> in the standard edition, um, all his like neurological writings when he was like, strictly a neurologist you could still Uh kind of see psychoanalytic ideas in his neurological writing like so he was already it was already percolating then even though he hadn't formulated it so explicitly oh wow Mm -hmm. i'm so intrigued by that yeah no it's fun there's a book called the cocaine papers and then even his book on aphasia which also is an insane edition it's you know it's really speaking neurologically about brain function but you could still kind of see his ideas and and how he was listening to patients differently even then wow okay now you you saying that makes me want a prequel to this series i want to see him in the lab i want to see him working on the eels you know <laughs> give it all to us we want all the freud okay, in moravia you know and I think your idea of having different analysts would be great too. But I think it's interesting because when you mentioned Young, it would that would be like too obvious. So it's I know. Kind of, like if they had made this exact same show but with Young, then we'd all be like, oh okay. But like the fact that it was Freud made it just like this like level of kind of bizarre surrealism that uh, gave it a different kind of kick, different edge. Yeah, that's true. I, in a way, the, the the twist to the young one would have to be him just being a boring guy sitting at home, you know, <laughs> you know just something really, really kind of banal. That would be the twist because with Freud, you're right. Like he's because he was so intent on um, bringing about a public opinion about psychoanalysis that was like serious and scientific and rooted in in research and observation. Um, yeah, it's true. Like giving it a, this type of twist where he's sort of like in the throes of some occult conspiracy, you know, it sort of flies in the face of what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With full on demonic possession. But also, actually, 
<laughs> yeah, demonic possession. This is it. I mean, do you think actually, as I'm like talking to you about it, it just occurred to me. Do you think that maybe the way that they decided to approach this story, you know, through this sort of like really outlandish occult stuff, do you think maybe they were tapping into the reality that Freud faced when when he did sort of break away from his traditional scientific colleagues and traditional medicine and started to pursue hypnosis and he went to Paris and worked with Charcot. He came back with all these sort of little bit like far out ideas Maybe it was experientially how he how he received uh, feedback from his colleagues and his from his medical community. Maybe people did treat him as if he'd just been away with the fairies, something like he like he was at, at some seance and like conjuring ghosts and every you know like maybe experientially that was how it felt for him that he was perceived to be this kind of like kooky eccentric guy. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think the idea then was like you're either science or you're this like crazy outlandish demonic possession <laughs> seance occult guy. You know, there's like there was no in between. It was either like either or. So if you weren't um, t- using their specific methods, then you were like out in left field and you were completely ridiculed and tossed aside. So I'm sure they uh-huh. that they they treated him that way, and I'm sure Leah, like you said, it probably felt that way. And they did equate, you know, hysteria before they understood it with things like demonic possession. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Just the fact that the word itself is rooted in the Greek of, you know, the wandering room and, you know, this sort of like um, totally, uh, yeah, fantastical representation of female suffering um, and, and kind of almost like relegating feminine suffering to this kind of realm of the absurd you know yeah um yeah totally discounted and um yeah it's totally discounted and it's also like it really shows kind of the weakness of those of those men actually the ones that are so like wed to their scientific ideas and have no room for anybody else's ideas because it's like if they can't prove it or find it like biologically in the brain then it can't exist and that's such a like ridiculous point of view it's like just because i don't understand something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist you know it's like maybe maybe we don't understand everything and i think freud understood that we don't understand everything and that we don't even understand ourselves and that's why everybody you know tried to get rid of his ideas because nobody wants to think they don't understand themselves and aren't in control of everything exactly exactly the fact that he was suggesting that we are a mystery to ourselves was way too threatening for people who'd built their entire careers on convincing other people that that they were fully in possession of the knowledge you know that they were um absolutely certain about you know our suffering being rooted in physiology and there's nothing that can discount that um it must have been incredibly daunting for people to be confronted with freud's ideas especially given the fact that he was so persistent about it he just would not go away uh, and no amount of social ostracism would stop him. Yeah, he still won't go away. I love it. And I think I society <laughs> as a whole has, like, repressed him. You know, it's like his ideas yeah. were really, they finally found a place where they were w- becoming widely accepted and more widely practiced. But then it's like the si- society re-repressed him and decided, you know, no, we can focus on, like, biology again and just take medication and not not bring all that up. We're more in control than, than, we, than we thought. Um, and now I think we're wow. seeing that we're still not so in control of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Maybe exactly. Freud was and, onto something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just the idea that, um, you know, the fact that there's some level of self-empowerment that can be found in the admission that we don't know everything. And this is the classic kind of Socratic philosophical position of admitting that you, you yourself uh, know very little, in fact, and you're you're then open to the possibility of absorbing experience and absorbing knowledge. When you're, you know, people like uh, Maynard, who was uh, re- represented in the show, um, he was really closed off, and that's a very uh, tragic state for a scientist to be in.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Mary Wilde, Freudian cinephile and host of the projection series held at the Freud Museum, London. She's also co-host of Projections Podcast. Mary has an upcoming course on The Joker on April 18th at the Freud Museum, London. It will be live-streamed online. You can sign up at the Freud Museum website, freud.org.uk. Also be sure to check out Projections Podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Projections Pod. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23 RL. Your support is greatly appreciated. And now, Sewing Strings from the just released album Sound 23. Gained control of what images she would capture. Youth is almost always the emphasis. It is important to her what she wanted to remember in her lifetime, 800 of which remain. So the, and perhaps even history itself, act when it seems as if this is hugely significant for feeling and written, rewritten in a sense. In the, indeed this has been, helplessness and hopelessness that one may feel dominated the rest by sheer force. Works have been found to have microscopic lens. He first began drawing the abstract art, including Soon, he found a way to fashion a microscopic, common, or object while present, but, and his time, which inundated people and experiencing. The shift in the world has been to accepting. Many produce both a familiarity experience, not unlike the experience of art, as if this history of art, of dissonance, when confronted, similar brand of camera, putting the power of Bindi, citizen, for the first time, conclusion of a clear pioneer of getting her due, the Swedish artist, between life and art, Levine defies herself by not having off Clint was interested in have their art and may art have its disturbing as the first shows of the manifest content of their attack on rigid academic worldview while the latter particles plants and such qualities and abilities that such skills in work with the boundaries she left upon her death. 
training over a person's lifetime. While this art markets another frequent, the radical possibilities of attended exhibitions in art critics, dealers, and parties, if not actively persecuting their own groups and shows, ignored or unappreciated, Viennese secessionist group, retrospective entitled during their lifetimes, in the ethically resigned from the association, reportedly aware of, off, exiled, but of course over time, main concern was with freeing, freeing for the guardian, become the new norm, and masterpiece of design, and no one design continues, snowflake melted, that design was forever, Capturing images of accidents, crime scenes, recall, reproduce, and recreate. This might seem was the time of prohibition, gang violence, and shift. Life and narrative in a new way, in a way more in rather than what they'd been born into, based on.